Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. One day in the fall of 1906, a scientist named Francis Galton left his home in Plymouth and headed off for the annual West of England Fat Stock and Poultry Exhibition. For years, he'd been a man obsessed with two things, measuring mental and physical qualities and breeding, which is pretty much what livestock fairs are all about, right? But the impressively bred specimens of fat stock and poultry were not what interested Mr. Galton most at the fair. He had an experiment he wanted to run on the townspeople. You see, Francis Galton had some strong ideas about people. Specifically, he thought that most of us are stupid and that any sensible society should put power into the hands only of the few with the good breeding to make them wise enough to exercise it on our behalf. The fair would be a perfect place to test his thesis, not because he could observe mobs of people paying perfectly good money for sticks of fried butter, but because each year there was a contest to see who could guess the weight of an ox. Actually, what people placed their sixpence wagers on was what the weight of the live ox in the booth would be after he'd been slaughtered and dressed. Naturally, among the crowd, there were a few butchers and farmers who would have been relative experts on the matter. But most of the participants were everyday fools like you and me. So Francis Galton gathered up the tickets after the contest was over and averaged out the 787 guesses. It would be an elegantly simple snapshot of the foolishness of a crowd. The ox ended up weighing 1,198 pounds after it had been slaughtered and dressed. Nobody wrote that number down on their ticket. But very much to Mr. Galton's confusion and chagrin, the crowd as a whole guessed 1,197 pounds. There wasn't a single genius at the fair that day who came close to matching the wisdom of this crowd. This is the first story in a book by James Surowiecki that he wrote a few years back titled The Wisdom of Crowds. And what followed in it were story after story after story about everything from collecting independent guesses to locate a submarine lost at sea to the collective brilliance of the audience on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? The Wisdom of Crowds is a strange but now well-established truth about the universe that goes very much against what we each seem wired to believe. It's so disruptive to think of wisdom as something collective, something shared, that none of us really has much of a corner on at all, rather than something possessed by individual saints and geniuses. It's disruptive because it suggests our lives are interconnected in ways we can't quite comprehend. And also because it locates this wisdom, this kind of knowing, outside any one of us, rather than within us. This may be an even more radical reorientation than it sounds. 
I've heard the story of Pentecost from the second chapter of Acts dozens of times over the years. It still manages to dazzle with those divided tongues as a fire resting on each of the disciples and the sound like a violent wind rushing through the house and out into the people in the streets. I can't quite form a mental picture of the scene, but Luke's description of the rush and the flames, they do their work on our imaginations all the same, don't they? What had never quite registered for me was the way the magic of Pentecost Pentecost stands in such contrast to the confusion and incomprehension of pretty much every individual Jesus encountered when he tried to teach them something about his way. This is a problem for a preacher because it can seem like the preaching task is to explain the mystery of God or or the teachings of Jesus, or the meaning of a story in the Bible like this one. But what builds up over the course of the New Testament is the sense that even Jesus couldn't very well take the truth about God and deliver its wisdom to each of the individual people around him. Occasionally what he meant and who he was would flash into clarity for a Samaritan woman at a well or some equally unlikely suspect. But the people he spent the most time with even, those 12 who followed him around and soaked up his teachings and got to ask him all their questions, the ones to whom he gave the charge to carry his good news out into the world, these people didn't understand what was going on in Jesus, even after he'd been crucified and raised. It's enough to make one wonder whether a certain kind of wisdom has ever come in individually sized packages. But then there's the story of Pentecost. The story about how Jesus' message really did get loose into the world. And it sounds like a storm his disciples might have begged him to calm down. I might have too. Because it blows apart what I tend to think the spiritual life is all about. Rowan Williams has said, it's difficult to locate spirituality in the New Testament. What we do encounter is spirit. And when St. Paul famously contrasted the life in the Spirit and life according to the flesh, he was expressing something much subtler than a squeamishness about bodies and their uncontrollable lusts and vices. Look more closely at the letters. Living according to the flesh invariably refers to the state of self-protection, hostility toward others. In 2 Corinthians, living in the flesh is living for ourselves, the antithesis of the way of Jesus. But life in the Spirit, as in Galatians 5, means an end to things like competition and envy. Life in the Spirit is a life of mutuality and service, of love of neighbor, even of enemies. Flesh and Spirit are opposed to each other because while the flesh wants rivalry, the Spirit wants communion. These are some of the ways Paul uses spirit and flesh in his letters, but isn't this the same spirit we see blowing through Jerusalem at Pentecost? Jews from every nation, we're told, were living in in the city at the time, and the Spirit of God didn't warm up each of their individual hearts one at a time, did it? It came blowing through the house where the disciples were sitting and right on out into the city. And then what happened? Well, all of the categories and cultures 
and languages that had divided people up and set them at odds since at least the Tower of Babel didn't go away. But a miraculous understanding was made possible across and among them. Listen to the list. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. All of these people heard the good news in their own languages. The flesh wants rivalry, but the spirit wants communion. It's not what we see so clearly at Pentecost. You'll hear a lot of preachers like this one prattle on about the problem of our culture's pervasive individualism. What we don't say so often is that the problem with an obsession with the individual may be that it's exactly what sets us up for lives defined by rivalries and self-protection above all else. Isn't that the world we're living in right now? And is it working, this culture built up on rivalries and protection of our own, honestly? Is it working? A black man died under the knee of someone ostensibly charged to protect him this week. He died after allegedly using a fake $20 bill to buy cigarettes. $20. I don't mention the news very often in sermons because doing so usually just sends us into our safe political corners where we crouch for self-protection. But I hope that's not the case today. Because reading the story of Pentecost, while Minneapolis smolders and shatters after the killing of George Floyd, feels like another scriptural wake-up slap to me. It matters what spirit is blowing through our lives. It matters whose spirit we're living by. And it's just not enough for Christians to frame tragedies like this one only in terms of individual morality. It's not even enough just to hold individuals accountable for their actions, though that has to happen. We have to go beyond them and beneath them. Because for the Christian, sin is never just an individual affair. Sin has to do with what we live according to as a people. And we have built up a common life for centuries in America on invented rivalries. And then we've preserved them with the protection of only some of our own. Biologists have shown us now that there's more diversity in the DNA of a flock of penguins than there is in a room full of black and white human beings. But we invented the notion that the amount of melanin in one's person's skin made them a fraction of a person we decided that three-fifths made them subhuman enough for Christians to buy them and to sell them, even if they'd been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, maybe even in Calvary's font. We created this category of other, this rival for our wealth and our worth, and then those of us with the power protected ourselves from them with property laws and economic structures and penal codes and sometimes we protected ourselves simply by looking the other way, even after the laws had been changed. In biblical terms, this is life according to the flesh to a T. It has led to a corruption of the imagination in all of us, to use a phrase from the poet Ross Gay. 
which is why we won't heal it with more and better rivalries. We, we won't protect ourselves from it with stronger and more violent forms of protection either. We can only heal it by living by an entirely different spirit. And if we're going to live according to the spirit of Jesus, we may first have to let go of this failing old obsession with the individual that our civilization has had since long before some Englishman gathered up tickets at a fair to prove how foolish the masses were, only to learn that there really is a wisdom that lives among us infinitely greater than what any of us can apprehend on our own. That old, that old story is broken, which shouldn't be news to Christians, especially those living on this side of Pentecost, because our even older story is what the spirit of a living, reconciling God can still do among us. Not just within me, but among, between and among all of us. And by us, I don't mean Calvary, I mean humanity. Black humans, brown humans, white humans. People from every nation under heaven or whose differences this spirit transcended at Pentecost. And it's this spirit's ministry of reconciliation, says St. Paul, that has been passed on to you and to me. Now, I don't know exactly what life according to the Spirit needs to look like in us right now at Calvary in Memphis. But it's got to be worth noticing that the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost was the gift of understanding. People were given this gift of hearing what people from other places who spoke in different ways had to say about God's powerful deeds in their lives. And so maybe may be understanding people who should be incomprehensible to us will still be the sign that we are beginning to live less according to the flesh, less as individuals who understand themselves over and against their rivals, and more as a people who live by a spirit that truly wants communion among all of God's people, a Pentecostal people who won't be satisfied any longer with a life that's anything less. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.